You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, February 14th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning, church family. While this is indeed the second Sunday in February, this particular Lord's Day is also marked on your calendar as Valentine's Day. So, Happy ice-cold Valentine's Day, Redemption Hill. Nothing says Valentine love like super cold, hard ice storms. And so to go along with the ice storm that has kept you at home in God's wise providence, he saw fit on this Valentine's Day to speak a word to us by way of a very desperate man. On the last night of his life, who goes to consult a medium for direction and he doesn't get comfort. He gets the confirmation of his condemnation. Happy Valentine's Day. Sorry, there are no cupids and arrows anywhere in 1 Samuel chapter 28. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a happy ending. So it seems quite like the perfect Valentine's Day morning to go with our last 10 months. So, That being said, grab your Bibles, wherever you are, open them up. 1 Samuel chapter 28, we are going to look at a tragic night if there ever was one. And while you're getting your Bible and we're getting ready to open God's word together, let me just very quickly say on behalf of my whole family, thank you so much for your prayers, your words of encouragement, and all the practical ways that so many of you cared for us over the last few weeks. I'll be honest, it was very uncomfortable for us as a family to publicly make known what we were going through because if I'm honest with you, it seems a little self-serving given my role. I mean, I'm the most public person right here. So to make a need like that known, it, it feels a little odd given all that's happening. But God has used the last few weeks in the way that you have cared for us to continue to work on our hearts, because if I'm honest, we would much prefer to be on the side of giving and serving than receiving. And so he's been working on me and working on us and our ability to receive. So family, thank you so much for loving us, caring for us well. Thank you for being the family of God to us for the last few weeks. We love you and we couldn't be more grateful for you. So that being said, let's get on to darker things. You might remember as we ended our time in 1 Samuel a couple of weeks ago, we ended in the first couple of verses of chapter 28. We, we saw David, how David had gone over to the Philistines, how he had begun to lie to the king of the Philistines and he would go out raiding on neighboring territories while telling the king of the Philistines that he was actually going to battle against Israel's tribes and for his supposed loyalty, the king not only gave David and his men a place to live, As chapter 28 began, we saw that he called David up to be his right-hand man. Having been so favored by the king, the king decided the time had come to go to war against Israel, and he wanted David right there next to him. In fact, you can see right there in chapter 28, the king said to David, very well, David, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. Quite literally, it says, you're going to guard or keep my head. It's a very ironic role for David, given he was the one who 
took the head of the Philistine Goliath. But that's where we were. And then right as we get to this predicament, what's David going to do? Is he going to go to battle against Israel? Is he going to fight with the Philistines against God's people? What's he going to do? The writer switches. He moves scenes. The rest of chapter 28 is actually taken up with Saul. Now, as you go ahead and go read, you'll see that chronologically, chapter 28 occurs after chapter 29. So in the chronology of things, it should go chapter 27, chapter 29, chapter 28. But the writer, when he was piecing these stories together, he inverted the chronology of those things. Why? Well, as a good writer, he is creating tension. He's built us up to this point of figuring out what's going to happen to our man David and then he shifts, he leaves us there. But he brings another level of tension in because he's also creating a comparison for us. David in his desperate situation and now we're going to see Saul in his desperate situation. He also wanted to be very pointed to God's people as we would hear this read. He wanted us to understand as we go through chapter 28 there is a fate worse than being caught up with the Philistines. And what could be worse than the situation that David was in? Well, the situation we're going to see Saul in, being cut off from God. So while the writer is building dramatic tension and exposing the distinctions between these two men, the writer is also offering for us a theological and pastoral reflection He's helping us as we read and discern these stories to be able to keep our trials in perspective. I mean, David is in a bad spot, but let's be honest, it could be worse. And as we're going to see in chapter 28, it is worse for Saul. Christian, as you're reading this story, you might find yourself in dire straits at work. I mean, you might be facing a situation where you have been slandered against or you're suffering some level of injustice in your workplace or school. And in those things, we, we suffer and, and in those things, we weep. Yet you and I must not lose sight of the fact that in all these things, by the grace of God, we have access to the throne of grace and access to the ever-listening ear of our Heavenly Father. That reality, it doesn't minimize the trial that we're going through. It doesn't minimize the circumstance that we're in. But it helps us keep it in perspective. This perspective is a very important part of why the writer chose to put these stories together the way that he did. He wove them together so that we could see as bad as it is for David. It could be worse. And so just what is Saul's situation that's so desperate and so ultimately dark? Well, verses three through six kind of lay the picture out for us. Verse three, Samuel had died and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now that's not new news to us. We, we've heard that already. We've known this has already happened, but that bit of information is gonna come into play in the story here in just a few minutes. He goes on to say, Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So he's looking back onto the early days of Saul's reign and saying that when things started well with Saul, one of the things that he did was he put all of the spiritists, all the necromancers, those who sought to get wisdom from the dead, all the mediums, all of them, he put them out of the land according to God's word. And if you didn't know that putting them out of the land, 
That's really the origin of Hogwarts. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Don't go tell your friends that. That's not true. Saul got rid of all of the mediums in the land, according to God's word. I mean, just listen to what God had to say about this in his word to his people. Leviticus 19, God said, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Don't seek them out, lest you be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. These mediums, these spiritists, they were defiling. Leviticus 20 says, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. This was a big deal to God, which is why before God's people began to enter the land, Moses recounts all of God's activity amongst his people in the book of Deuteronomy, that great sermon before the people go into the land. He says this, Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, they listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. This is a big deal to God. God was intent on the land of promise being cleansed from those things. Why? Let's take a minute. Why? Well, God's instruction about these things is not because such things as mediums or spiritists are fake. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that those kinds of things are fake. In fact, as God was delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, it was the spiritists of Pharaoh who were able to replicate the plagues that God was bringing upon the Egyptians. No, God isn't saying avoid these things, get rid of these things because they're fake. They're to be avoided because they're an abomination to him, because they're evil, and ultimately because they're idolatrous. What makes them idolatrous? Well, these very practices put the mediums, the spiritists, the necromancers, those that read omens, whatever it may be, it puts them in the place where God alone belongs. You see, if you or I go to someone or to something other than God to find out something about our life that God in his wisdom has chosen to withhold from us, then we're putting that person or that thing in the place that rightly belongs to God alone. So God, is, God says these things are to be avoided at all costs because by God's people, not because they're fake, but because they're evil and they're an assault on God's wisdom and authority and an assault on his love. And so the writer tells us that back in the beginning of his kingship, Saul, in obedience to God's word, put all of these practices and all of these practitioners out of Israel. And it's important because it's going to come back to play later in the story. So Samuel's gone and the mediums and the spiritists are gone. 
But the writer tells us the Philistines have moved in. Verse four, the Philistines have assembled and they came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. At some point this week, we can't do it this morning, take a look at a, at a Bible map and what you'll see is that when the Philistines drew their army up to go to battle against Israel, these two towns that are mentioned, the Philistines draw up along the Jezreel Valley, which cuts east-west across the land of Israel. What they are doing is bringing their entire force up and cutting the land of God in half, separating Saul, who's on the southern end of the valley, from all the tribes and the armies on the northern end, and also by controlling the valley, they're able to dictate the place of the battles, which gives them the best advantage to use all of their military might like chariots. Previously, a lot of the battles that have been fought against the Philistines were fought in the hill country, where their chariots and a lot of their machinery wasn't able to be used. Well, not here. They've drawn up the full weight of their army to control the valley, cutting off all lines of communication and supply between the north and the south of Israel. And they're ready to lay waste to the land. But it's not just the position of the Philistines that's causing Saul such fear. It's the personnel that's with him. Remember, David and his men are now counted amongst the Philistine armies. Saul's heard this. He's heard that David's there. He's known what David is capable of and this is what's going on in his mind and his heart. And the writer says he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. I mean, fear has been a hallmark of Saul's story. And now this desperation is taking hold of his heart in the very same places where God had previously won such decisive battles on behalf of his people. Barak and Gideon both going to battle in according to the wisdom of the Lord and the word of the Lord, the Lord winning victories on their behalf right there in the area where Saul is. But Saul can draw no confidence from that rather than being gripped by faith and the one true and living God. He's gripped by fear and unbelief. He's desperate. The Philistines are here and the voice of the Lord is not. Verse six, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, which at times God's spirit would use, but as we know for his disobedience, the spirit of the Lord has been removed from Saul. God wasn't answering him in dreams or by Urim. Urim, which means lights. We've, we've heard these already. These are the instruments, the Urim and the Thummim that God had given for the priests to discern the the will and the plan of God in certain decisions. But Saul had all the priests of the land killed. And the one that remained had gone over with the ephod to David, most likely taking the Urim and the Thummim with him. Conceivably, Saul had someone else make duplicate copies, but those aren't going to be able to discern anything. So the Lord is still not answering him even by the prophets. And we know Samuel is dead. We've been reminded of that. Having rejected the word of the Lord repeatedly, Saul now finds himself in this place stumbling in darkness without light. But we read the verse and it says, didn't he inquire of the Lord? Well, 
The rest of the story is going to clarify it for us. Saul was willing to go through the motions because what he wanted was for God to get him out of a difficult situation. He wanted the plans of God and he wanted the relief of God. But as we'll see as the story unfolds, he didn't want God. He wanted what he could get from God. He's not calling out to God for God. He's inquiring, trying to use God. And as William Blakey wrote, Saul was incapable of the exercise of soul which would have saved him and his people. The most terrible effect of cherished sin, it dries up the fountains of contrition and they will not flow. It stiffens the knees and they will not bend. It paralyzes the voice and it will not cry. It blinds the eyes and they cannot see. It closes the ears and the voice of mercy is not heard. It drives the distressed to wells without water, to refuges of lies, to physicians who have no medicines, to gods who have no salvation. All he can feel is that his case is desperate and yet somewhere or other he must have help. Saul was unable to come to God for God in humility and repentance. And in the hardness of his heart, the depth of Saul's darkness becomes more clear in what he resolves to do at this point. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. Now, that was fast, right? I mean, we were just told that Saul had put all the mediums and spiritists out of the land. And here his men seemed to know exactly where one might be. So verse 8 says, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and he went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. Now, he stripped himself. You've got to see this in your mind. This is the king. Kingly garments, kingly robes, kingly weapons. He strips himself of all that would identify him for who he is. He lays aside all of his royal attire. He puts on a robe covering that sense of who he is. One, that he might conceal himself and his identity and the crime that he is about to commit. But two, because indoor, again, if you look at a map, it's located to the north and he's going to have to skirt around the Philistines to get there. This is how desperate Saul is. So by night, as if to emphasize the darkness, he goes. And the writer says, he came and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Now, she's naturally assuming that these men that have come to her are part of one of King Saul's sting operations, just trying to see who's still practicing these things in the land. Man, there's no way. Don't you know that this is against the word of the Lord and in the word of the king? Punishable by death? Why would you ask me to do this? And in her hesitation, friends, don't miss it. God is offering Saul 
one last way of escape from the road that he is on. Her words should have pricked his conscience in such a way to remind him of his own law forbidding the very thing that he is asking according to God's word. But Saul is in no mood for self-reflection and self-examination. So in verse 10, it says that Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. This is a horrible irony. Notice there in your Bibles, the name of the Lord is in all capitals. It's in all capital letters whenever the covenant name of God, the name that God revealed, I am Yahweh. The name that he said is his covenant name. Whenever that's used in the Bible, Lord is always capitalized. What Saul just says is that I swear in God's covenant name that I will not obey his word. No harm will come to you. That's where Saul is now. And friends, this is the last time the name of the Lord is going to be used on Saul's lips. And it's used to support his disobedience. So verse 11, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Right? If God won't speak to me, let let me at least try to raise the spirit of one that God will speak to. Peter Lightheart said, what a dreadful state to recognize the need for truth from God while being too hardened to come to God himself. Friends, it's not too unlike many who refuse to come to God in repentance and faith, but yet seeking the the need for truth from God will constantly go to other believers and, and ask for their prayers. Friend, if you desire the truth from God, if you recognize the need of mercy from God, if you desire access to the mercy of God, you simply need to bring the burden of your sin to the cross of Jesus, to come to him in faith that you might receive from him forgiveness and freedom to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive mercy in your time of need. Friends, this was not the nature of Saul's heart. Saul had the air of a spiritual desire, but it was very misdirected. Verse 12 tells us that when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what's his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And it's there, it says, that Saul knew that it was Samuel. And so he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. It's the robe. Robes that have played such a prominent role in the story through this entire book. You might remember when Samuel's parents took him to live with Eli, the priest in the tabernacle, to serve out his days in service of the Lord. His mom would make for him robes every year and bring them to him. 
It was the robe that the last time that Saul and Samuel saw each other, Saul tore in anger. It was in tearing that robe that Saul heard from Samuel his last words to him that God was going to tear the kingdom from him. It was the robe, and Saul knew that it was Samuel. Here's the last thing by, by way of kind of sidebar that I'm going to say about the oddity of this chapter. There's lots of speculation as to whether or not this was really Samuel. Did Samuel really appear? Well, we don't actually know. There's a lot left unsaid because that wasn't the intention of the story. In fact, if you go and read it with a lot of detail and very carefully, you'll see that it's right after Saul says, bring up Samuel for me, that it says Samuel appeared. We get no record of this medium doing anything to conjure up Samuel's appearance. It's as though the minute that Saul says that, Samuel appears, which may very well be why she screams the way that she does, because she hadn't done anything. Who knows? Who knows? God, in his wisdom, is perfectly capable of calling Samuel to this place for his point and for his purpose. What we do know is that the writer makes clear Saul seemed to be confronted by Samuel. And the words that Samuel speaks to Saul don't bring him the comfort that he was hoping. They bring him the condemnation he's already heard. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I love that. Why are you bothering me? Why are you doing this? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Makes no mention of the sin that has got him in the predicament that he's in. No mention of his ongoing rejection of God's word, but don't worry. Samuel's going to bring it back to his memory. In verse 16, Samuel says, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Saul, you're at odds with God. He wants your heart. And this is just another reflection of the hardness of Saul's heart. He's less concerned about God's absence than he is for insight into his problem. You'll see over and over throughout the Psalms, times and instances when the very presence of God will feel so far and so distant to God's people. But over and over again, even in their distress, what you find from God's people is a longing again for the presence of God. Saul doesn't want God. He wants the plan. He wants relief. His spiritual desperation is misdirected. Saul, you're at odds with God, Samuel says, but not just that. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You're at odds with God, Saul, and David is going to be king. Why? Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Why? 
because Saul repeatedly treated God's commands lightly. Saul felt like he could alter them to suit his desires. And when he was confronted on it, he tried to excuse it away and make a religious rationalization. You remember the story? God had told Saul to finish his judgment on the Amalekites and not leave anyone alive, but Saul didn't obey. He did not kill everyone. He took the king captive and he kept some of the livestock. When he was confronted on it by Samuel, the first thing Saul said was, oh, oh, I was going to use the best of the livestock as a sacrifice to God. And over and over again, he kept trying to rationalize his disobedience. And Samuel told him right then and there, 1 Samuel chapter 15, that his disobedience was just as wicked as divination and idolatry. Those diviners, those spiritists, those mediums that you had sent out of the land, according to God's word, your disobedience is just as evil. And now, having not taken God's word or his own sin seriously, Saul in his last days is practicing that very sin of divination. And what had seemed like a small area of compromise to Saul was in God's eyes as evil as idolatry, as evil as witchcraft. Friends, we need to make certain that we understand it's no different for you and I today. When you and I make rationalized space in our minds and in our hearts for what we might call small areas of compromise, right? Like, we're going to get married. We love each other. What difference does it make if we're living together and sleeping together right now? We're not hurting anybody. We're going to get married. Right? No, 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 we don't tithe. But look, I use the money to give my kid every opportunity at advancement and enrichment that I can imagine. It's not like I'm robbing a bank. Friends, when you and I rationalize small areas of compromise, small areas of disobedience, allow bitterness to remain in our hearts, to rationalize keeping back forgiveness, holding back forgiveness for what someone may have said or what someone may have done. We make rationalized compromises in our hearts for that area of, of lust that we say isn't that bad. Friends, left unchecked, that small area of compromise grows into much greater levels of rebellion. And those small areas of compromise and disobedience are just as evil in the eyes of God as the sin of divination. Saul treated God's word lightly, but God treats his word with the utmost significance. Saul wanted to constantly brush aside his disobedience, but God needed him to see that his disobedience was just as rebellion to his rule. Saul wouldn't listen to the word of God and now, God is not speaking to Saul. Friends, what small compromises? What areas of rationalization are you constantly working to make peace with and space for in your heart? What small areas of disobedience, small in your eyes, but if you were to humbly look at them through the eyes of the Lord, 
What areas of disobedience do you need to repent of? Paul would remind the church in Rome that if you constantly despise God's word, he has every right to remove it from you and give you over to the very thing you seem to want so badly. Romans chapter 2. Saul, you're at odds with God. David's going to be king because you have refused to hear the word of the Lord. But Samuel isn't done. The last thing he's going to tell Saul is that his days on this earth are over. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. And it's fascinating. Samuel comes into the story in the very beginning of the book and the disaster of the priestly house of Eli. And he calls out judgment on that house. And Samuel is now going to exit the story for the last time, calling judgment on the house of the king. And this pronouncement that Samuel brings at the end of Saul's life is not just the pronouncement of the end of his days, but it is the ultimate pronouncement of the failure of Saul's kingship. He was appointed as king in the Lord's words, 1 Samuel 9, to save my people from the hands of the Philistines. But now both the people and the king are about to be given into the hand of the Philistines the very next day. And this is exactly what's going to happen. If you flip over in your Bibles, just a few pages to chapter 31, this is what happens. Just listen real quick. The Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together, the very next day from what we just read. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. And in the very next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news. That's the same word we translate gospel. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shean. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul and all the valiant men, they arose and they went that night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of beth And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And they took their bones and then buried him under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. That is how the life of Saul ends. That is 
how the book of 1 Samuel ends. But before Saul is stripped and hung up on a wall, he's going to have his last supper. Verse 20 in chapter 28. After hearing the words of Samuel, Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. And then the woman came to Saul. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand, and, and I've listened to what you said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey me, your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread, remember that phrase, before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. And Saul refused, and he said, I'm not going to eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked an unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Friends, his last night on earth, his only company was a medium and his servants. And then the writer says, to close out the story, they rose and they went out that night. They sat together, shared a meal. The morsel of bread, of unleavened bread. And when they were done, they got up and went out into the night. As you read it, I wonder if the scene sounds familiar to you. Does your mind drift forward to another meal? Uh, another last supper? Where at the meal, there, there was a man, a man of enviable privilege. One who had walked with Jesus for three years, day in and day out. Seen the miracles, heard the teaching. Been used by him to see people become followers and disciples of Jesus. There was a man there in that meal with Jesus. Yet in his heart, he had forsaken Jesus. John says of that man named Judas that after receiving the morsel of bread, of unleavened bread, he went out and it was night. John wasn't just noting the time of day, he was giving an indication of the state of Judas's soul. But here's the thing, friends. Judas wasn't the only man at that dinner who would rise and go out into darkness that night. Like Saul, Jesus bore on his head the curse of a prophesied death. Jesus, the only truly righteous man, the only one who ever perfectly obeyed God's will in all things, he too would rise up and walk out into the darkness of that night where he would be stripped and he too would be hung up and he would die for sin he did not commit while his enemies would celebrate his death and what appeared to them to be triumph over him. That night, Mark records in his gospel, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God's Son prepared to die, in the midst of the, the sin-cursed darkness, 
The words that Saul spoke to Samuel could have equally been said by Jesus. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. But friends, how infinitely great was the difference between the darkness of Saul's own sin and Jesus going out into the darkness of sins he did not commit. Saul went out that night into a darkness that would last for an eternity in hell. But Jesus, in obedience to the saving will of his Father, he entered into the darkness of our sin, the darkness of our condemnation, in order that he would take away forever the curse of sin for all who would come to him by faith. Jesus went into the darkness of our sin, of our condemnation, so that by grace, through faith in him, we might enter into the light and the life of his resurrection and glory. He was forsaken that we may be accepted. Friends, Jesus, he is our only hope in the darkness of our sin. You, you and I in ourselves, we're no better than Saul. We all deserve to be forsaken because of our sin. Our rebellion, our rationalized disobediences, it's the same as divination. It's the same as idolatry. All of our lying, all of our gossip, all of our bitterness, all of our envy, all of our lust, we all stand just as guilty. This is what makes the good news that we have to proclaim to all people and in all lands so great. Our king was forsaken in our place so that we may be accepted. And the gift of his grace, the grace of his sacrifice, it comes through faith. By trusting and knowing that he alone is our only hope for righteousness. My friends, this morning... The message of Saul to you is this. Today is the day. Today is the day to listen to the word of God's grace. Don't delay. Don't harden your heart for another opportunity. Don't find a way to continue to rationalize what to you seems like a small indiscretion and one day come back to think that you can write what you've done. If Saul could speak this morning, I believe that Saul would say, today is your best opportunity. Don't turn away from the word of the Lord. For those who will receive him, the good news of the gospel declares that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, for those who have believed in Jesus as king, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, is the day. Will you listen to the word of God's grace? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you. Lord, that you continue to speak through your words and by your spirit to the realities of our heart. 
the temptations we face, the lives we live in the midst of a broken world. God, the rationalizations that we make, how easily we can convince ourselves that 75% obedience to your word is better than 50%, right? How lightly we take your word, how lightly we take your commands. Lord, help us to see that your word to us is the source of life. It is the source of joy. Lord, help us to want you. Help us in our hearts to desire nothing more than you. Help our hearts to be satisfied in nothing less than you. That in that, your word to us would be sweeter than honey. It would be the light that we look for to guide our paths. It would be that which we delight in walking in because we know from whom we've received it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to see all of the small compromises, all the ways in our own hearts and lives that we have dismissed or belittled your word, chosen to live in our own way, even use religious means and languages to justify it. Help us to see it, that we might repent of it, remain soft to you and your word and repent of it and return to you in faith. Lord, let your presence with us by your spirit and your word to us by your spirit be sweet to our ears. We ask that you would do this work in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.